This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides, take it. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen... Welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me once again is, you know, in this show, I think I I can definitely say that I'd be one of the premier experts of heat in the world, and luckily on the show, there are at least two people I'm going to count on one hand that I would put into that upper echelon. One of them is the wonderful Joe Lynch, um, who you've heard couple of times already in the show but another person is the insanely great Australian film writer Craig Matheson. Craig welcome back to One Heat Minute. There is no one better to follow Manola Dargis sir than you so welcome back. I I could feel I'm worried because after that I'm going to make a super basic mistake within the next five minutes. Oh well at Uh, least at least it won't be me in this episode you can take off for the team. Um (laughs) Uh, Craig, uh, for uh, if, if you guys uh, aren't sure, best place to um, uh, get Craig is at CM Screens on the Twitters um, first. And the reason I say that first up is because um, Craig has a sort of newsletter format called Binger that comes out every week. And there's a really ripping one. Um, and I'm not sure, it sh- should be in the next couple of weeks, but it might be a few weeks back, um, is like the 50 best actual best movies that are on streaming services, particularly Netflix. And I know if you're in Australia, Netflix seems like just there's like, I don't know how many more nineties movies I need to see streaming on the homepage. Like I just want to get to something that is actually qualitative and the critically acclaimed section, Craig, can I just say, I, I don't know what drugs that person who curates that is, but there are some movies in there. You're like, what are you doing? So you need to read Craig's top 50, like actually legit best 50 movies. And if you're, you know, feeling like giving yourself a mini film festival, follow that. But Craig, welcome back to one eight minute, mate. Thank you so much for coming back. Oh, my pleasure. I had such, I had such fun last time. I was on like a, I was on a complete high after I think we went for, you know, I think I took maybe three or four hours of your life last time. So it was a lot of fun. This time, though, I've got, I'll apologize for anyone who's listening at home. We're now in the 61st minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Obus Heat. Um, and the 61st minute, if you're on the original theatrical cut of the movie, um, it is like, you know, obviously 60 minutes, zero, zero, right on the dial. And unfortunately, this cut is there's a naked butt of a prostitute hanging out of a bin if you're at the freeze frame right now where we're at. So, Craig, sorry, firstly, that this is exactly where we're at. It's probably one of the more dated moments in the actual film, but we're not going to muck around. Let's dive right into this minute. It's a great minute. It's in amongst a really uh, fantastic bunch of lead-up minutes, um, and it really gets to the emotion of the scene. We've seen Vincent come in and just do his job and be great at it and sort of sworn in um, and get into this. But um, this is where the sort of emotional truth comes to hit home. So we're going to watch it together, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about it with you guys. How old? 16, 17. Been here about six hours. How'd she die, Rachel? 
meet her head in, same as the other cerebral hematoma. Who's that? Mother and siblings, I guess. What the hell are they doing here? Because it's fucked up. Somebody inside knew the girl and called the family. When I run a DNA check on the semen, my intuition says it's coming up the same guy, so it's a series and ending up in your court. Sheriff's homicide getting anywhere there? Not yet. Get off of me. Get off of me. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh. Oh. she? That is a really lovely end to a really brutally emotional minute, Craig. It's great encapsulation, that minute. I mean, it's it's all, the scene, the minute works all by itself. You know, it builds all through that minute, you know, and Elliot Goldenthal's score, I think, is, is incredible there, especially. I mean, we don't quite get to the crescendo of it and that sort of beautiful, sour, sad sort of way it segues into yeah. the next minute. Yes. Which the next person will get. But even just, just the way, such a great example of film craft there, just the score, just pulling and pulling and pulling upwards and downwards at the same time. And then you just know that it's going to come when the bodies meet, the score is going to make that transition. Um, just one of those sort of technical ma ma little mastery that, that he just has salted all the way through. Yeah. And Goldenthal's score, the more that I talk about, and sometimes, you know, as part of this entire project like recording a few episodes out of sequence although you guys who are listening along or, or playing along at home are sort of watching it in sequence with us is golden score is so like so eclectic so rich and diverse like this is very um you know this is sort of traditional hollywood romantic bernard hermony scores and then you know in our last minute that we watched that you know that ter one of the last minutes we watched together that terrific minute the confrontation between judd and and uh, and and de niro um charlene and neil it's 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 a it's it's like ferocious and, and so fast paced. It's there's none of that languid, um, as you describe that sort of lovely, um, swelling and then a, and then a, and a, and a sort of falling away of the score in, in the, in the scene. It's very rigid. And then it, and in a, a future minute, which I was uh, talking about with the future guests and you'll sort of hear it. So I won't spoil who the guest is that I, I find horror, like horror movie kind of tropey tones and some of the big crescendos of the strings and things like that. So yeah, it's just, you know, when you, when you're in it and for, for there's so much sound, there's so much happening in this minute as well. Like helicopter, you got helicopters, you got crowd noise, you got them talking, you've got this score that's, you know, keep you know providing this bedrock of sound, and then it sort of swells to to this thing. I mean, I'm, this is the classic "we shot all night for one minute" sort of production. <laughs> yes, but, yeah. like Warner Brothers would have gone through the through the books and gone, "All right, Michael spent seven hundred eighty thousand dollars, but this minute shot it." <laughs> downtown LA oh my god so yeah seven hundred eighty thousand dollars in helicopters in lights people thought it was a film premiere we had security up here oh man exactly um I want to go back just right to the very beginning of the minute and in the previous episode um which unfortunately Craig you haven't heard yet but you will um with Manola Dargis Manola and I talked about the picture you know as we've led up to this minute 
there's some there's an amazing sort of sleight of hand that man uses with uh Wayne Grow's character. So when he grabs this prostitute and he actually gets his you know, his hands on her, his paws on her, if you like, um it, it does an immediate sort of jump cut to the bottle the bottle top coming off. So it's, you know, in a, in a funner movie, I think I referenced like Edgar Wright, like that's an Edgar Wright 101 sort of shot that would be played mm. usually for comedy. But for this, it kind of gives you a little bit of relief and respite as a viewer because it's so heinous. Like you really don't want to see what, what he gets up to in that scene, especially now that we're seeing it in this minute in the fallout. And I think if there's one thing that, and there's very few things that I would ever change in this movie i don't need to see that polaroid like in this moment how disposable she is and how she was found in a dumpster or and him even just looking like and this is where i think credit more to pacino's performance like him just looking at a polaroid and then just like having a reaction shot to like oh i didn't I didn't need that. Like I didn't need that image to be burned into my mind. And, you know, maybe that's part of the effect, but that's like one, one split second of this, you know, 170 minute saga that I'm like, I think it was just that one bit that they didn't need to make me know that whoever they were hunting, which I know is basically what, which we know is Wayne grow. Um, I don't need to see that. I think he's, I already knew he was nasty in that room long before. It's interesting because I think I think the, the the point of the perhaps the point of the Polaroid is in Pacino's reaction, yeah. And you know we maybe they need to we need to be shown the Polaroid because that needs to focus us on Vincent, and and as you say, it's it's the shortness of his gaze. The fascinating thing about this minute for me is is the is the sequence of him what he looks at, the amount of time he looks at things. He, it's a, there's not only the Polaroid, there's also the body itself. Yeah. You know, and his his reluctance or his refusal to to look too closely at things, even though it's in his nature to study and to learn, whether that's because he's seen it all before or he's seen it all from this particular suspect. Um, but I find it quite fascinating what he does and doesn't take in here and I think it I think there was an incredible amount of direction I, I imagine from man to Pacino about about how Vincent is dealing with this um, and you know how it stretches back to that whole idea of professionalism to being the guy who always goes forward into whatever's waiting for him even though he does in this case know exactly what's waiting for him yeah it's and and the, the big challenge is I suppose when you think it, when you frame it in that way, it's like, it's exactly what, it it sort of helps you be on a more even keel with the upcoming conversation, you know? So as we move into the upcoming sort of the most civil and sort of beautiful confrontation that he has with Justine, where they get to kind of unravel their relationship together in the most civil terms, you get why Vincent doesn't want to share in that Mm. moment. Like, although it's very much a Justine is leading that conversation and leading that dialogue and making them have the conversation, in that moment you're like, I just saw what he has to see and I don't really think that he should share that with you either. Mm. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, the scenes like this are the ones that really carry forward into into, into all those Justine scenes and, and, you know, with Natalie. Um you know, it's 
yeah, I think as other other guests have said, so much of heat comes back to the families, the personal relationships, the professional feeds into the personal. You know, I think maybe the first time you see heat, you think the personal feeds into the professional, but perhaps over time I, I've come to think that the professional feeds into the personal. Yes. And it's the personal that's the elevated, the most elevated um, and deepest almost part of the film. And it's also... Um to your point here, it's uh, this is a this is a funny one in contrast because his relationship with Rachel <laughs> seems to be one of his more enduring ones. You know, like <laughs> he can't keep a marriage together, but he, you know, his him and his forensic scientist are very good. You know, they're on very good terms. They're very familiar with one another. They see each other at all these things, and uh, seems to deep, you know respect her opinion. And yeah, he's just you know when when you look at him here, he's you know, this is his show. That's why, like, like if we, I'm just going to sort of cycle back through so I can sort of talk very specifically is, oh, there's a great camera move there. But yeah, like there's such a show going on right now and, you know, they're, they're very much larger than life and helicopters and they're framed up, you know, the city is this, you know, background texture. It's so lovely, like, you know, lovely composition. But then... It's almost like the steadiness and the stability is offset by this swirling camera, you know, that we sort of conclude the minute with. It's this very organic, like, <coughs> excuse me, um, very organic second where it's like Vincent's not in control. And that's the emotions. That's the emotion. This is all the clinical. I'm going to look at the Polaroid. I'm going to take a snapshot and take stock of this, you know, poor woman who's been beaten. I'm going to be you know, the picturesque cop. It's almost like that's a shot, again, by Dante Spinotti in, uh, in um, LA Confidential where there's the movie premiere pop bust. Like, that's almost like what this feels like. It's done with that same sort of uh, uh, flair, if you like. And then looking around to the, to the mother, this is where the camera's moving. It's unsteady. Oh, what's she doing here? I have to actually deal with this, you know? I don't want to do this. <coughs> But uh, yeah, like I love this interplay. We're only like 17 seconds into the minute and, and Vincent's like, you can tell at this moment, once he's seen the family, he's actively ignoring them. He really kind of doesn't, he doesn't want them to be there to do his job because it's so easy, as you said, to like, I'm going to look at this for 10 seconds as a studied item and look at this for a couple of seconds and then I'm just going to look at for all those details that I need to do the job. But I, right now I can't think of this as a person because otherwise I'm not going to get the job done. I must say, um, you know, the other thing about this, we, and particularly you're, you're frozen here on, on your screen on, on Vincent and, and Rachel, just, you know, thinking about the detail that's gone into Rachel's look in terms of that's not how you imagine the forensic scientist. There's a sort of a casualness, you know, a way that suggests there's a whole other life there. And, you know, Cindy Katz, who plays Rachel, was on this great little run. She'd had these little... Little, great little role. She'd been in Scorsese's Age of Innocence about two years prior. Small role. Yeah. But you know, it's it's sort of fascinating how, you know, great directors find these actors. And, you know, Rachel's got a whole life that's sort of just suggested in these few moments. And, you know, it's – I think it's, it's one of the great things he does is, is the value it puts in the smallest parts and, and how they connect and interact with the leads – and I mean, I think, and obviously, there's a great example coming in a few seconds with the victim's mother and Vincent, which oh. is probably far more climactic and obvious. But in the same way, it's 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 the treatment that man gives to the smallest moments and the smallest 
roles, people have one or two lines, and how he doesn't devalue them next to the nominal stars or the protagonists of the film. Yeah, they're all part of that tapestry. Like, Rachel's essential. She's, uh, you know, coming into the wardrobe, as you said, with the wardrobe, she's got this... She's like she's like the C, proto CSI because all these CSI shows, you know, whatever the I don't know, what's the other one? What's the other? I, that's that's all, that's what it's elevated to in my mind. What's that other one? NCIS, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, the dyslexic C, CSI. Um, you know, you see all these sort of eclectic people, but you know, maybe some of that at least started out in truth, like man's got here with you know, a crime scene investigator is not worried about directing the traffic and being the show and this being their film premiere um, sort of moment like Vincent is, they're just in there doing their job, but they're there all the time. And they're just as important in those moments because they're one of the first responders and they've got to break it down for these guys and they're there. But yeah, she's great. She's just excellent. And she just looks, the look is, and, and I love this. Oh, there's just that look. 23 seconds into this minute. You can't see it from as we're Skyping, Craig, but she looks over to the mother like, oh, God, I don't want to deal with her either. And I just love that from, like, in her in her, her very specific corridor of work, she doesn't need she doesn't need the interference of this massive, you know, high-profile helicopter spinning around moment. She'd much prefer to be like, I just want to see what the evidence tells me. Do my job, get the hell out of here. Um, but, yeah, there's a little great moment that happens uh, there. How much business is also happening in this frame as well? Can you say that? Like, there's a helicopter streaming around. There's people. There's lights. There's you know a ton of extras. This would have cost a mozzo to stop in the middle of LA because it is literally in the middle of LA that they're shooting this scene. Absolutely. And then you, then you think about how hard was it, you know, to light. I mean, because it's got that sort of. What I now, what we now probably think of as a classic man sort of tone, that sort of bluey nocturnal, edging towards gunmetal grey, yes, sort of tone. Um, God knows how they actually, you know, how Danny Spinotti and I'm sure a very large crew sort of achieved that on on such a wide scale. Yes, uh, sort of to get it across that big open space and. To and make it's all, it sort of hold. And they're wrestling with natural light too. You got all the ambient light from the city. You got a helicopter. Got these disgusting neons from the hotel because they pan into the car park. You got this like you can actually see lights down the way. It's really, really you know, to then focus in on this sort of composite light in the middle and have Rachel and Vincent perfectly lit. It's so incredible. It's so great. The thing I always remember about Dante Spinotti is that just after he, obviously such a claim, he got hired to do Barbara Streisand's The Mirror Has Two Faces. (laughs) And she fired him. Reportedly because he couldn't make her look young enough. So on camera, um, because she was playing the romantic lead. Um, Oh, poor Dante. Look, he's a brilliant man, but he's not a magician, Babs. He can't de-age you. There are limits. Well, I mean, exactly. She had to wait. She would have. She was around now. She could get it done digitally, but um, oh could yeah, not, could not get it done then. So no, they'll Benjamin Button you up right now. That's uh, that's that's <laughs> that's for sure. Oh, done. But then he went and did like. I mean, that talk about you know. There's some really great actors and performers that went on and did other great stuff. And you sometimes lament performers who 
maybe were never as good again as they were in Heat. But Dante Spinotti went from Heat to LA Confidential, which I think is like, you know, pound for pound, two of the best films of the decade. So I think that that's pretty, pretty impressive in and of itself. And then they stopped working together for Collateral. They did The Insider together, but they didn't, they didn't do Collateral. Because I don't think Dante was confident that digital was what, you know, what eventually digital mm. is. Like he was... At the time, I think he was like, no, 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 I'll stick with this film thing. I'll stick with the, you know, actually shooting on film as opposed to shooting digital. And then, you know, digital became omnipresent and all these great classic cinematographers sort of moved over. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think um, I I always think man is, with his key sort of collaborators, He's he wants a partnership. But I think he also wants to be challenged, and he wants to push them as well. I mean, I think I mean I think we all agree he'd probably be incredibly demanding to work for oh, yeah. because of the standards that he sets. But it's also you know it'd be quite fascinating that you know the level of back and forth with those highest sort of production department heads like cinematographer and, and so forth. Just you know what's what's the give and take? You wonder, and you know what how you know what's the depth of the collaboration? I mean. Because you can't imagine heat can't simply be one man or one person or, or anyone because it's it's you know the it in 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 cases multitudes so you know you know you're always thinking about those those key people and and like know. a location manager I've talked more about location managers on this podcast than I probably ever have in any film writing that I've ever done before it be, because of how vital and vibrant each location is. And when you're purely, when you're, you know, examining a movie as we are, that purely shoots on location. There are no studios. There's no artificiality. It's like then the amount of, and and particularly shooting in one of the most film cities in history, then it becomes this sort of weird, um, you get in this sort of weird nexus of like, am I actually viewing LA or has someone just gone and shot in Georgia and made it up? You know, that as some movies have done in the past, but it, like, no, these are legitimate Los Angeles locations that uh, happen around the place. So you, you start to figure out, wow, these location managers are just insane. And like the researchers, you know, for each of these individual uh, people and roles, like, and you know, Rachel, she probably hung out with a set, you know, I, I'm sure one, uh, if I can... If I can convince some of the you know the research liaisons of this movie to come onto this podcast, I'm sure we could mine amazing details about you know there would have been actors hanging out with CSI people and just you know scoping them out and having conversations and going okay cool this is how they dress and this is what they say and this is how they put the gloves on this is how they take them off this is how they would yeah treat a crime scene all, all a million little things absolutely and then you know man's probably had the same conversations as well to, to have that overview and to, and to be able to talk to his actor as an equal about what they both know and can sort of put into the character in those few vital seconds yeah that, that indie cats gets i think it's um i think what you were i think what you were saying before is like it's definitely not one man but maybe it's just an approach that's what i think is kind of great about all of his films it's like this you know he seems to just have all these people committed to the approach, like wholeheartedly, you know, it even happened in Miami Vice, all those, you know, the, the Farrells and the Foxes and the, you know, the tactical training and that whole lovely team with, you know, Justin Theroux and that very eclectic, um, you know, team um, with Herc from The Wire, who I never remember his name. All I know him is, is Herc from The Wire. Um, but, you know, I think it's that um, the method approach in everything. 
you know, and everyone has has the method, which is like the location managers will go out with cops to figure this stuff out. <laughs> you know, Dante Spinotti's flying in a, a helicopter around the place testing, you know, how to shoot, you know, night footage and all the actors are, you know, at any given roles are working with, um, have people made available to them to help enhance their performance. And, you know, the then, you know, as he's done on Thief, you know, a whole bunch of crooks are going to play cops and a whole bunch of cops are going to play crooks. And, you know, you just get that really strange thing. And in this scene in particular, it's like, it's, it's, it is absolutely a stage for Vincent Hanna. Like this is the Vincent Hanna stage that I'm trying to think of like where the equivalent is, but like maybe this is the Vincent Hanna stage. Um, like like Neil's stage, like Neil's stage was for the um, uh, for the heist that went wrong, if you like, you know. So like this is showing, even though that this this moment kind of goes wrong because there's no resolution. You know, he hasn't found anyone. He's basically got no leads. It's a series. He's asking, um, you know, Rachel if there's any anyone that's been found for it. And then he's also getting the, you know, the emotional roller coaster of oh well now this family's here but i think it's like this is the stage for us to go oh this is what vincent does and he's really good at it even though we've kind of already seen it once before but like we're just seeing it again like oh this guy's really good this is what he does he comes in he takes the he takes the lead and he's here coordinating things he sees some regular faces and tries to figure this stuff out and then they're just coming at him because he's on call like he's catching the next thing that's here um but yeah i He's the one. It's always elevated to him, you know. It's like, I mean, Vincent in that way is like a, is like the director, isn't he? You know, the the sheriff gets nowhere. Yeah. You know, the the lower levels get nowhere. Well, they push it upwards. So you know, the decision can't be made by an assistant director. We will push it up to Michael. You know, the case can't be solved by the sheriff. We push it up to robbery, homicide. It goes to Vincent Hanna. Yeah. So there, there is very much a director, isn't he? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Vincent in his way. And Neil is too. <laughs> and Neil is too. They've got these great little echoes with one another, but that's but that's the like you know heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? Like he's the star of the show. Like um, in the previous minute, which you haven't heard yet, Craig, but you will. Um, Manola Dargis poses a theory that he's like Greta Garbo. You know, Vincent is Greta Garbo in this scene where he just basically swans in onto stage, and like this is his stage. This is where. He does his main, you know, all of his showmanship and, and all, all of his craft is on show in this minute. And then, you know, it's sort of that weird emotional breaking of the fourth wall that we get to go to here. Um, I'm just going to keep playing as we go. You know, this poor girl, she's there. It's a series. It's coming to you. Look at his face. There's such a great, she's got such a great face in this moment. I'm just going to straighten that up so um, uh, so you can see there, Craig. You know, Sheriff's Department got any luck? No. Or with the gum chewing happening. Yeah. <laughs> Which we later know it's, it's cocaine addiction. Um, but no, I, I prefer the gum. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, I'm just trying to think about it. I, I prefer that, not knowing. Um, but then, you know, it's it's 15 seconds to go. This poor prostitute's mother... And her siblings, which is even more... I mean, Rachel's at it best. It's more fucked up because the siblings and the parents are here and people who know her and she's a local prostitute that just happens to have a family living close by in poor, you know, underprivileged circumstances, which is all the more tragic. 
She escapes under the police line, runs up, and Vincent confronts her. And she comes up and she's just panicked. She doesn't know what to believe. And he just embraces her. And there's this beautiful swirl here. 53 seconds into the minute, there's a swirl. The camera moves around and it cuts between uh, to a different perspective. And then back. And then there's this wonderful, like, knowing embrace from Pacino there. Just sort of drinking her in acknowledging what she's feeling and then just embracing her. And in the next, you know, the next few seconds, and we won't spoil it, but the next few seconds of the next minute is this embrace and them sort of dealing with that. It's a really, it's actually really beautiful. It's, and it's all the more tragic as well. Yeah. And it's, and you know, it's got that great back and forth between them. You know, some directors would, would only stay with Vincent, you know, it's all about Vincent's reaction but, you know, the man cuts between the mother, played by Hazel Goodman, and um, and Pacino. And, and by doing that, I think he gets this sort of, there's a transference between them. Yeah. Where they're each sort of giving the other something. You know, Vincent is looking to contain her in some way. He doesn't want to take on more than he has to from her. But he knows, you know, that grief, he's seen that grief so many times, I'm sure, that you know, he knows he has to take something from her to, to sort of to, to give her some moment there. But it's it's kind of he does have a, a a speck of there is a coolness and detachment to him, and whether that's because he's been here so many times or he's just prepping himself for what's to come, it's it's quite fascinating that you know it comes back I suppose to that idea of professionalism and and staying professional, um, which of course in in man's films is such a you know, a mainstay of, of what the characters sort of how they deal with the world is through professionalism. Yeah. I, I like, I particularly like this minute because as you said, there's that transference, but particularly because <clears throat> I think Vincent wants to give her the certainty that it is her daughter and she wants that certainty but he kind of find they find a way in that like acknowledgement that like brief gaze where he sort of embraces her that neither one of them has to go to the extreme almost like it's like the extreme is that she sees her dead daughter mm. and the extreme for Vincent is that you know she demands to see the daughter and i think that there's this weird diffusion that happens and maybe that's the like that's the, like that professional mastery of like being able to look at her and at the same time as saying, yes, that is your daughter, and yes, she's dead, but, like, my job now starts. Hmm. My job well, now starts with you. It's kind of, it's, it matches the physical movement of the scene because she's coming forward and he comes to meet her, and as they turn, essentially he turns her and turns her and then sends her back the way she came. And I think emotionally the scene, he's doing the same thing in the scene. Yeah. Goes forward, meets her engages turns and pushes that emotion back out yes um it's like it's like a funnel like that perfect i'm going to funnel you here and then i'm just mm. going to lead your that energy straight out of here because it it, ha, it can't stay i mean he's it's it's amazing because he's so wise almost or he has such impeccable instincts emotionally on the job 
and and of course such failed <laughs> and fails miserably in life yeah but that's the ma- that's the mastery right the mastery is not only because we see him when he's interacting with cops and he's like breaking down a scene and boom 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 there's a tempo and it's rigorous and the guys who work with him love it like they like they love that hierarchical bang 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 let's make sure that things are happening um but this is the moment where he's interacting he's by himself and he's got to you know he's got to command that energy he has to sort of be there, see it, be completely obsessed with it, but at the same time be able to detach and sort of push it away. It's like, it's like the new this you know this moment of him hugging and transferring that energy and sort of getting her out of the scene is Neil McCauley nodding to Michael to kill those guys because like it's the thing that you don't want to do. It's the thing that doesn't want to happen, but he does not hesitate. He's like straight instead of instead of like the kill. Here is the the nurture. And move away, and that's like that's this is like their most opposite moments, I think, for these two guys. Like this is Vincent truly showing compassion, which later on, when bullets are flying over, you know, downtown LA, you're like Neil probably doesn't have the capacity for that. Mm. It's you know as we talk about this, you, you realize that you know this is also about Vincent being a performer. I think as you talk about he's in the center there, it literally is set up as a stage in the round, isn't it? I mean it's. The, it has a, the scene has its own audience built in. You're just literally yes. watching people watch Vincent and Rachel and the spectacle, and you know it's sort of which just you know ups that sort of emotional stake, the stakes for the scene. I think um, that sense that they're being watched and we watch them being watched. And the thrilling um, scenes in this movie are all things where we're watching them, where we watch the guys come out of the the, the restaurant. You know what is this? Some kind of convention. And when Neil, and you know, when Neil was watching Vincent, and when the team are watching them at their stakeout, and when Vincent's being watched here, it's they, there's some real beautiful, like, uh, little sort of performative notes that are happening, and tension is in like the seen and unseen of the people who are seeing this, you know, and like, um, and in our that wonderful scene that you and I got to talk about, you know, um, De Niro's watching Judd. And Chris is watching over Neil's back at a, at the abandoned, uh, you know, drive-in. So there's the, you know, I think you've just hit the nail on the head of like these weird little echoes of people are watching, you know, and, and that's the, that becomes the tension or it then becomes the reveal. Like it's the unknown, oh, well, they, these guys are here or, oh, that, you know, uh, it, it kind of really chops into whatever feeling that you've got there. But in this scene, it's like now the audience, someone's rushing his stage you know, exactly as you said. He's the singer. What does the great singers do, you know? You don't get the security to tackle her. You embrace them. You hug them and you say, thank you for coming to my show. Now get the hell off stage. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that was the way that uh, Pacino approached it. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe maybe not. I, 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 it is actually a very Pacino type of thing, isn't it? To sort of that sort of sense of, of being accessible but not, not being fully accessible, I think, is a, how we always think of Pacino, uh, away from whatever role he's playing, that sort of that dedication that he's famous for but the way it also cuts him off. Uh, you know, if you read certain things, it's cut him off from sort of enjoying other things in life because he's so dedicated. He gets obsessed. Yeah. He gets obsessed yeah. with roles and... And structures and, you know, working with people or, you know, stagecraft and, yeah, I, I agree. 
it's so funny. Um, it's so funny when, like, when a piece of art, like, seems to choose an actor. You know, like, it seems like, where, how did you possibly, you know, converge with this? And, like, it seems like Michael Mann, for, like, 20 years, had this idea in his head. And these guys just never left his mind as the two perfect guys to do this. And they sort of, it was like manifest destiny. He was like, he like dreamed them into these roles and they come into this movie and I'm like, it's, it's, it's precisely in these moments because there's so much of this movie, you know, that I don't think that it's Pacino or I forget that it's Pacino, like in a more calculating way, like you, you're watching it and you're like, oh, that's not, that's just Vincent Hanna doing the Vincent Hanna thing. And, you know, heat obsessives like you and me, it's not just like, you know, a lot of folks who just watch this movie casually are like, oh, you know that moment where Pacino said, and you're like, no, no, it's not Pacino, that's Vincent Hanna. And you have to do the correction. But in some moments, like this moment, you're like, oh, no, this is the Pacino thing. You know, this is both a Vincent Hanna moment and a Pacino moment. Like a, you know, like a Robert De Niro moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, you know, you know forget the money like that's like that's like that's a moment where it's like a, a De Niro moment at the same time you know like it's a um what's it Jimmy Conway from Goodfellas moment sort of thing happening at the same time you're like yeah. this is such a De Niro moment but like yeah. in this yeah I think you know there's so many things going on here this is a stage um you know it's, it looks like there's a film premiere it's it's outside you imagine he would have loved it Pacino, like loved the audience of extras, loved the helicopter, loved the lights, loved the show, um, and then loved this like person rushing the stage. And yet, and yet he he underplays it for most of it. You know, lesser actors would have milked this scene mercilessly. You know, in the the physical engagement, the length of the gaze, the the you know trying to exude compassion. Yes, and you know, and and he hangs back in all those regards, and it, and it says so much more, and it contributes so much more to to where the next scene and the scene after have to go, you know. And I suppose that's when you get Pacino and De Niro, that's what you're getting also that that ability to to give more to the film, but give less to the scene almost. Yeah, sort of you want them, happens- you want them to underplay it. In this scene, it would be totally a different scene if he hammed it up. With like we've, we've already seen him in a much bigger scene with, you know, you know, dead bodies already there, and 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 all of his guys on the scene. He's just about catching up. You know, it's just that great catch up, catch up, catch up, catch up. And here he's doing all of it himself, and so he's looking around this whole scene and playing it out and listening to Rachel as well as looking and thinking. And even the way that he's examining the crowd, you can see like the, he feels like his head's going a mile a minute and then he just shuts it off because in this moment he has to focus on the energy of this person. And then it like, it's almost like he's surrendering to Goodman, this great, you know, this, this little exchange. Cause she's so unforgettable. You never forget her in this entire once you've seen this moment, it's all the more tragic. And then you go and look up her name on the credits and it's like prostitute's mother. And you're like, oh, I wish she even had a name. <laughs> she, her and her poor prostitute daughter don't even have names in this movie. It's just prostitute and prostitute's mother. Um, so it's a bit sad, but even more tragic. But um, yeah, I just love, love this. And we've got that frame. And he's kind of just looking up off into the distance. 
that right. tension in his mouth, I mean, you know, is it's as if he wants to say something but doesn't want to say something. Oh, it's uh, so, this scene and so many scenes of this movie is so much about what he's not saying here. He just doesn't need to, like, you imagine there could have been dialogue here, like really crap, and in retrospect, probably crappy dialogue. <laughs> but right now it's it's perfectly nothing is said. You don't want anything to have been said because everything is said in that exchange, those eyes. Mm, everything said visually, you know, yeah. which is, I, I think is one of the, the key things that underpins heat is that, you know, you know I'm sure every, people who really love it have done this where you've ended up watching it without the sound, you yeah. know, for example. Or just the score. Yeah. Just Goldenthal's yeah. score for some yeah, of these moments. Different ways to watch it, you know, and they all work. Yeah, there was a really, really interesting article. So people are going to be listening to this pretty close to the time that we're recording it. There was a really interesting article the other day about the um, the sort of advent of a few of the modern, like a modern action films, um, having these alternate noir cuts or black and white cuts. You know, we had the uh, what I love, the lovely Chrome edition of Mad Max Fury Road. We had Logan Noir, which is a black and white one, and and I was thinking about it. And I'm like. It, particularly in this scene, like this is a purely visual scene. You know, you really, as much as the exchange is happening with Rachel, there's so many beats and, you know, I, I get accustomed to it in this show. Like I'm showing Craig as we're talking on Skype, like my remote control is here, my PlayStation remote is here when I play the movie so I can navigate through the scenes. And a lot of the time we're not watching it with sound as things are going through. And everything in the visual language that leads up to this moment is all just telling you everything you need to know. You you barely even need to hear a piece of dialogue. And I go, I'm, you see in my head, I'm like, you know, there's probably an appetite for some heat geeks out there to say a heat noir, a black and white. Because he could. It just w- it would work in spades because especially with the hockey masks and the, you know, the, the, you know, the way that the entire film is lit you know, with these vibrant contrasts and, and, you know, the blacks and the blues and, and then that, you know, terrific underground tunnel that Neil drives through with Edie. I'm just thinking about how bright and, you know, deafening that sort of visual would look. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, we didn't when when I was when this concept came up, and I imagine other folks who do the minute versions of you know the minute examinations. I don't ever think I would have seen as many like little vignettes as I have in each minute, but like this is like a little vignette. Like the previous minute is a vignette, and this is a vignette. So much um, that easily tells a whole story about who a character is and how they interact and the stage that they're set on and oh it's just great and you know if you look at the framing right where you have the framing now the vincent's head and he's holding the mother's head in his hand they're actually framed off to the left of screen and on the right of screen somehow they've got that that sort of ambery green and that that sort of pale red light to sit next to each other right sort of where you would expect this maybe the the third or fourth person, in, if they were if they were shooting a wider group of people to be, I mean, yeah, God knows how that those two lights got there, <laughs> you know how they did it, but um, and obviously they're at such a great distance. I think one of them may well be a police light or on a could cruiser be a poli- on a cruiser car that's like a, yeah. a, a block away. It looks like, <laughs> but you know they balance the you know they balance the you know the two people to the left. Those 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 two lights are sort of share the same sort of eye line to the right. So 
it's just all there, um, you know, you know, waiting, you know, which I think is, you know, if you, if you ascribe to that view that heat is about, you know, in a way is about, it's all waiting, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. It's, it's, if you're a believer in fate, you know, like all the elements of heat were waiting to be put together into the film the same <laughs> yes. way that all what ends as a sort of a, as a tragic collision was all waiting to happen from the start. That yes. There was no, no way out either way. No, you know, the, you know, to, to quote its, its most, uh, to quote its most sort of feverish, uh, homage, an unstoppable force and an immovable object. <laughs> like it was just absolute destiny that it was going to happen. You know, you know, yeah, it's, uh, this is just one of those minutes, Craig. Just one of those minutes where it's all it's all happening and it's totally detached. Now, you haven't heard it yet, but folks who have heard it, this is a moment, and I'm going to throw this at you because you're going to listen to it too, I'm sure. But Manola Dargis and I talked about in the previous episode a bit of a theory that she had that this is the moment that we are the most connected because, you know, I think Neil is intrinsically connected with Wayne Grove throughout the story and Wayne Grove feels very much like you know, sort of Neil's curse. You know, from that moment that he makes the decision to shoot these guys and then disappears like a wraith into the into the night, you know, they're connected. But this moment, more than any other moment in the film, like deeply connects Wayne Grow to Vincent Hanna. And it was something that I hadn't really thought about too much um, because he's unnamed and because he's a series, but... We know that it's Wayne Grow. Do you think that perhaps Manola and I now, because I absolutely subscribe to that theory, um, do you think we're insane? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? I'm really interested. Well, I, I, I can see where it's going. I mean, you can sort of see that Wayne Grow is an affront to both of them in different ways. He's an affront to Neil's professionalism and a reminder that Neil chose badly and, and made a horrible choice that sort of that that rounded on him almost immediately yes and his acts are an affront to to vincent you know they're a violation of of every moral sort of standard and order and and understanding so you know wayne grow i suppose is is that as a shadow is is sort of casts over both of them you know and i suppose it's another thing that links them that connects them is is that wayne grow is something or someone, they're both, in their own way, looking to extinguish. Um, yeah. And if you, look, you know, and if you have a share, if you share a common enemy, then doesn't that make you friends? <laughs> Maybe a friend that you take for a cup of coffee. <laughs> oh God! But no, I just I'd never thought of that intrinsic, like that connection in my mind. That always operated on these really. I don't know if it's like I don't want to call them rigid, but in some ways, when people talk about this movie, they talk about you know there's like a magnetic force where the closest that these guys ever get together until the very, very, very end of the movie is like, it's, you know, they've got these polarities so they can't touch each other. You know, they go into this Kate Manolini scene and that's about as close as they'll ever get to one another. Um, but the Wayne Grow character, you know, seems to, for me anyway, seems to just cast a huge shadow over Vincent's life because it's, you know, these things that then drive, you know, certain acts in Vincent's life and certain ways that Vincent, is led towards Neil at the end of the film and even using him as bait, you know, even baiting and having cops watch, um, watch him at that airport hotel. And it's sort of, 
but in this moment, like this is the guy, you know, this is the guy. And and the tra- and the, the deeper tragedy is that later you go, maybe when they do a DNA test on him when he's dead, they immediately and very unceremoniously wrap up, you know, twelve pending serious cases of you know, violence or something like that. Or maybe it's done even 10 years later. Or maybe it's never done and it remains unsolved. This guy just disappears off the map. But this is the moment that sort of starts to trigger and go, wow, this guy, you know, this ghost is is having a real huge impact across both of these guys' lives. I mean, you know, we think of we think of Neil, especially, and, and, and Vincent as sort of aberrations and, you know, people with extremes who are outside their orders. But when you put Wayne Grow there, I think that puts them in a different light, you know, that, that reminds you that that their choices are different than his and that, that there are still not limits for them, but areas they just they don't naturally approach. And it's a reminder that there are people who are set, who are different to them who live in those areas and don't ever come out of those areas. Yeah. Wango does. Yeah, Wango lives in that <laughs> Who knows? Who knows how many? I, I, every time now I watch him in that previous scene, I wonder how many cities he's been to. I, 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 these are the things I wonder about. I forget birthdays. I absolutely can't remember what date I've planned something, but I will sit down <laughs> in my quiet moments and go, how many cities was Wayne Grow in? How many times has he done this? Has he burned a job in Chicago? Has he burned a job in New York City? Has he burned a job in Atlanta? And he's just sort of sprawling his way across the country, you know, making mistakes and then, you know, doing heinous acts that just get his, get his, you know, jollies from and then moving on to the next town. Like, yeah, this, there's a, there's a great convergence that happens with all of these characters and particularly him, particularly him. Ladies and gentlemen, I love talking heat to Mr. Craig Matheson. Craig, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Again, you will be back undoubtedly i'll come a knocking via twitter dms or email or something to that effect thank you so much for talking this amazing minute oh it's been my pleasure blake i i feel like um second time you know you lose a little bit of the nerves so you can sort of bear down a little more i don't think i've babbled as much this time so you know now i've got my eyes set on the on the third the third sort of the end of the trilogy oh the end of the trilogy no there'll be there'll be you know, unlike the terrible Alien series, there will be a quadrilogy and it won't be bad. It'll be great. Um, so, as I said before, guys, at CM Screens on Twitter, you can find Craig. Um, strongly recommend, even if, you, if, you, if you're not on Twitter, just Google Binger. Um, and it's, it's spelt as it sounds. Um, Google Binger, you'll find him um, and subscribe to it. As I said, the top 50 Netflix movie or top 50 movies that are on Netflix right now, will definitely clear up the absolute rotten car crash um that is the netflix home screen um and give you some direction in your life so i can strongly recommend that and obviously if you follow craig on twitter you can find all of his other great writing all over the place um thank you again craig thank you garth franklin uh, for our website design thank you paul davies for our music um and thank you guys all for listening to one heat minute um it is an absolute blast um to continue to bring awesome people to talk michael mann's masterpiece from 1995 and we'll catch you next week